Good morning, church family. Um, today's scripture reading is from Isaiah 7, 1 through 14, and Matthew 1, 18 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. Isaiah 7, 1 through 14. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Isaiah, was king of Judah, King Rezan of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shear Jeshub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and do not be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Reason and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Aram and Ephraim and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it amongst ourselves and make the son of Tabiel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. The head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only reason. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remali's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. Matthew 1, 18 through 23. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Brenna. Good morning, everyone. So lately, our family has been into watching uh, America's Funniest Home Videos. Remember that show? Everybody recorded all the epic fails they saw and they caught on camera. It was the thing that was YouTube before YouTube. 
And uh, one of the repeated themes that you see almost every episode is you will always see someone standing on something that isn't meant to be stood on or isn't strong enough. They're standing on a coffee table. They're standing uh, on some rickety old chair or some, you know, rigged up ladder that you're just sitting there going, oh, it's going to fall. Because quite honestly, you know it's going to fall because if it didn't fall, it wouldn't be on the show, right? I mean, kind of anticlimactic. And then we all laugh and wonder if they're in the, in the hospital or kind of feel a little guilty about that at the end of it. And then yesterday, it became a little too real for me because I'm standing on my neighbor's ladder as he's standing at the bottom, bracing it for me while I'm putting Christmas lights up at about 25 to 28 feet high on my uh, peak of my roof. And he looks at me and he says, are you sure it's worth it? And I said, yes, (laughs) I'm shaking at the top of this ladder thinking, boy, I hope I don't end up on America's Funniest Home Video or the hospital. I hope this ladder is able to hold me. I think I've told this story before. In our house, there's this little metal stool that we have uh, that my wife normally sits at at her desk. Um, And one time, though, I'm sitting on this little metal stool uh, and we're talking uh, and eventually, Jolie looks down at the bottom. She says, John, can you please stand up like right now? I was like, why? I stand up and I realized why. There was a weight limit on this stool that apparently I, uh, at my, well, we won't talk about numbers, but <laughs> that my weight was higher then. Because as I'm sitting there, the stool is doing this and it's just bending under my weight. And I start to think, okay, I thought that stool was strong enough to hold me. I looked at it, and for a little while, it actually felt like it was able to hold up under the weight I was putting on it. But apparently, it wasn't. And this morning's passage in Isaiah chapter 7 is going to give us that same opportunity to reflect on the question of what is it that you are standing on? What is it that you are putting your weight on? What are you putting your hope in? Because biblical hope is not in the way that we often say, well, I hope something happens. It's not a hoping for something, but it's a hope in something. That's how the Bible uses the idea of hope. You will and are inevitably putting your hope in on something. You are standing on something. The question is, what is it, and is it actually able to bear up under the weight that you're putting on it? This Advent season, as Jin uh, mentioned just a few minutes ago, we're going to be looking at some of the Old Testament prophecies uh, in the book of Isaiah and how they are fulfilled in the birth and the, in the coming of Jesus. And we're going to consider things like the hope that that comes for us, the, the comfort and the peace that his arrival brings as we patiently await his second coming, his return. And so today, this Advent season, this morning, is a reminder that our greatest source of hope, of life, for this world and the next, is found in Emmanuel which is God with us. For some of you, this might be an invitation for you to consider for maybe the very first time the fact that what you're currently putting your hope in, your own ability to control your life, some created thing, that it's like a little metal stool that's starting to bend under your weight. And you just feel, you just know it's kind of falling out from underneath of you. And maybe it's going to be for the first time an opportunity for you to go, I'm going to put my hope in Christ who will not fail, who is eternal, who is Emmanuel, God with us. And for others of us, it'll be a call to to check, to reflect, 
does my functional hope match my theoretical hope? In other words, we sing all kinds of songs like, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. In Jesus the Messiah, all our hope is in you. We, we, we sing these songs that say our hope is in Christ. And the question is, is that what the song of your life is singing? It would be an opportunity for us to repent. In other words, to just, just turn from what we have been putting hope in or are tempted to put hope in and put it in the one thing that this passage highlights for us, which is Emmanuel, God with us. To get into this passage, we have to kind of jump back 2,700 years to the book of Isaiah chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, please join me there. And we're going to meet a king named Ahaz. Now, Ahaz is the king of Judah. And when we think of Israel, we often think of Israel as one nation, except the interesting thing is at this point in history, Israel is not a united nation. The the 12 tribes are actually only one united kingdom for three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. And right after Solomon's rule, the nation of Judah is split apart from the rest of the tribes. The rest of the tribes are called Israel. Their headquarters is in Samaria. And it becomes a separate kingdom entirely, while the the Davidic line stays at Jerusalem and becomes the nation of Judah. So there's actually two different nations here. And it's been that way for many generations. And King Ahaz is ninth removed, nine generations removed from King David, and yet a million generations removed from the heart of David. Ahaz is described in the Bible as one of the worst, most wicked kings in Judah or Israel's history. He leads Israel, or he leads Judah, excuse me, into all sorts of idolatry. He even offers his own child as a sacrifice to a pagan god. And he has no interest in following the Lord. He's ruling at a really dangerous time for Judah. If you go to some of the parallel passages in 2 Chronicles 28 and in the book of Kings, you find that from the south and the east, the nation of Edom is attacking their villages on the outside and taking their people captive. And then from the west, the Philistines are raiding their villages from the west as well, and they're destroying and ruining all the crops. And this already small and vulnerable kingdom is getting weakened and weakened by the opposing from the west and from the south and the east. And then to the far north, the very far north, this great superpower is rising called the nation of Assyria. And they're pressing down southward to take over all the neighboring kingdoms above Judah. But the most imminent, the most immediate threat that that Judah is facing is right to their north. Between them and Assyria are two nations, Aram and Israel. And those two nations have joined together. And they're putting some pressure on Judah saying, you need to join us so that the three of us can resist the Assyrian superpower, which quite honestly isn't quite enough. But... They're hoping to gain more on their side. You can actually see in chapter 7, verse 6, you can see a little bit of the kings of Israel and Aram's uh, mentality. They say this, they say, let us invade Judah, we'll tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and we'll make the son of Tabeel king over it. In other words, we're going to depose Ahaz and make our own king, so then he'll join us against Assyria. And all of these threats leave the nation of Judah, King Ahaz and everyone in his palace. They're terrified. Verse 2 says his people were shaken. 
like the trees of the forest are shaken by a wind. And so Ahaz very clearly has to wrestle with the question, what will he do? To whom will he turn? What will his response be? Will he do as he has been called by the king, as king by God, which is to look to the Lord and put this hope in him? You see, the kings of Israel and Judah were warned, don't put your hope in other alliances. Don't put your hope in your chariots. In fact, you weren't even supposed to take a census of your fighting men, lest you be tempted to, to feel really good because of the power of your army. But instead, they were actually to embody what Psalm 20 verse 7 says, which is some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's what he was called to do as the leader of his people. What will they stand on? What will he put his hope in? Again, if you go to one of the parallel passages in 2 Chronicles 28, you find that Ahaz looks at everything around him and he chooses the strongest thing, he, the strongest ally he possibly could. He goes out and around Aram in Israel and goes straight to the king of Assyria. He goes to the biggest dog that he can see around him and says, I want to join up with you because that'll give me protection and safety. The problem is, it actually goes on to say that the king of Assyria came to him but gave him trouble instead of help. See, Ahaz used his human eyes and his human logic and understanding to gain the strongest alliance possible. But the problem was he wasn't called to simply use his eyes, but to called to use the eyes of faith. For there's one greater than Assyria whom he failed to trust in. Because the real problem facing Judah was not one of military muscle or political cleverness, but it was an issue of faith. And Ahaz repeatedly demonstrates a lack of faith, which makes what God does in response to him even more amazing and gracious. Look at what he does in chapter 7, verse 4. He comes to Ahaz, who is a wicked king, undeserving of any goodness from God. And this is what God's message is to Ahaz. Be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid. Don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. What a great image that is. <laughs> yeah, those two powerful kings that join together are much stronger than you. They're like a spark that flies out of your fire pit that you just got to go, it's out. That's, what God's, that's from God's perspective what all the greatest armies in the world are. The greatest threats against him are like smoldering stubs of firewood that aren't even burning. Who is resin? Who are, who are these people? And what power do they actually have? Verse 5, they plotted your ruin, yet this is what the Lord says. Verse 7, it will not take place. It will not happen. Verse 9, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And God graciously reminds Ahaz that no one, nothing, not even the superpower of Assyria, what seemed most logical and seemed able to hold up under his hope, can actually do that. But it's a call to stand in faith. Again, the same as the psalmist in Psalm 37, 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Now, I don't know everyone here. I don't know all of your stories. 
But I do know that there are places where each and every one of us are in very similar circumstances to Ahaz. And I don't mean you're king, and I don't mean you have an army that's about to surround your city and, and you know, starve you out and besiege you. It's not that exact. But you are faced with similar circumstances. If you go back to the four statements of hope that God just gave to Ahaz, and if you turn those four into questions, you'll be able to find exactly where your circumstances match Ahaz. He says, be careful. And so the question would be, where do you feel in danger? Where do you feel that something in your life is being threatened? Something that you love and that you hold dear. Where are you alarmed and on alert? Where do you sense your emotions and your, your, your heightened? Where are you in over your head and life just feels out of control? He says, keep calm. Flip that into a question. What are the areas of your life that you just feel like you are freaking out? What are the circumstances that just make you spaz? He says, don't be afraid. What are the things in your world that are just making you terrified and you are like a tree shaken in the wind? Do not lose heart. Where are you disappointed? Where are you about to give up? So each one of us is going to connect to some of those experiences very differently. But I know that those things are true of each one of us because we're human. And to be human means that we are finite, that we are limited. We're limited in our knowledge, in our wisdom, in our understanding. We're limited in our power to do anything about it. And we are in a broken, big, scary world. All of those experiences are unavoidable as humans. The question remains for you and I, where will we stand on? What we, who and what will we put our hope in? See, while our enemies are not imposing armies, the book of Ephesians tells us that our battle is actually not against flesh and blood. Even if it feels like your enemy is some un, someone else, that's not the real enemy. He says, but the enemy, is, but our struggle is against the rulers and against authorities and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We all face moments. And it's usually the moments where we feel fearful, disappointed, discouraged, disheartened, that we will have revealed what is our functional hope, what we are actually standing on in that moment. And those moments are the greatest opportunity to intentionally stand firm in our faith, or we will not stand at all. It's a whole slew of different things that we can put functional hope in. And I think there's something unique about the Christmas season that has some unique traps and dangers for us. Now, those of you who love Hallmark, don't throw anything at me, all right? I don't, but that's okay if you do. You're allowed to be wrong. I'm just, I, I shouldn't have picked that fight. That was too much. I'm sorry. Every Christmas movie, I don't care if it's Hallmark or not, is set up to create expectations in us that this year is going to be different. That this year, everything's going to work out in the end. She's going to get the girl. They're not going to lose the farm. The Grinch's heart's going to grow three times the size. You just keep going. Every one of them, because there is magic in the Christmas season. 
There's something magical. And don't get me wrong, I love it. I just risked my life climbing to my house to put lights on it. Like I'm, that wasn't that dramatic. That's a little too far too. I, we love Christmas. I'm not saying there's anything against it. My problem is it's also a metal stool that cannot bear up under the weight of your hope. Because the post-Christmas blues are a thing. How many of us all say the same thing? Well, January is miserable. It's just cold, dark, with nothing to look forward to. Because it cannot bear up. It can't deliver on our loneliness. It can't deliver us from disappointments. It can't give us ultimate meaning. It's not strong enough to put our full weight on to stand on. Commercials do the same thing at a subconscious level. You watch commercials and you think, I would be happier if I was on that beach right now. But then you go on vacation and every vacation you go to, you come back and you're like, well, that was nice, but now it's over. Even if it was the greatest vacation you've ever been on, it ends and it's not strong enough. This is what commercials do. Marketing is literally geared to triggering this response in us. Ooh, that will make my life better. And we buy it. And then if you're like me, you get new clothes and it lasts like seven minutes before you spill something on it. A new iPhone comes out and now your model is obsolete and it's just a never-ending race. There's a lot of weak metal stools that fight for our attention that if we sit on it and put our weight and our hope on it, it will collapse under us. I mean, you could literally take a moment and just reflect on the places where that has been true of you. I know for me, the moments of stress, the moments of greatest pressure, they will reveal for me where I am most drawn to putting my hope in. And it often has to do with control and comfort. This is just me. You may be different than me. But man, when I get stressed, I can get lost in some stupid phone game until my kids go, Dad, you've been playing that phone game for too long. I could sit and watch, binge something for hours because I just want to kind of distract myself. And that bag of chips that you're supposed to use in multiple servings becomes a serving, right? <laughs> the point is, I know my draw. When I faced with these types of scenarios, man, I just want to kind of medicate from it. I just want to distract from it. And I think that that's going to help me in that moment. And I can put my hope on a bag of chips or an entire container of ice cream or on Netflix or on anything. Or I'll power up. Because I can control this. I can make this situation exactly what I want it to be. And maybe you don't power up in anger, but maybe you kind of go to that manipulative angle. And you're going to do what you can to just get control on something. And what you're both, whether it's kind of the, in the, in the muscle-up, power-up mode, or kind of the, the passive-aggressive manipulative, both of those are resting your ability, your hope to control the scenario in yourself. You're hoping in your ability right there. How do we know what our functional hope is? One way you can do that is start to pay attention to your knee-jerk reaction when something happens that disappoints you, that makes you fearful, that overwhelms you. What do you go to right away? That will show you what your heart is bent towards. Do you want to go towards some sort of pleasure? Do you find that when you're stressed, pornography becomes a stronger addiction and a stronger temptation? You go to another glass 
You go to more food, hoping they're going to deliver you momentarily. You just immerse yourself in a book or a movie. These things are not bad things inherently in and of themselves. They are just terrible gods, and they're terrible to put your weight on. They cannot bear up under it. Maybe you find yourself exploding in anger and rage. When you find your emotions going off the charts in any realm, let that be a little check engine light. You know when that check engine light comes in your car, the one that's just is constantly on in our van? Just how it goes. <laughs> when your check engine light goes off, it's showing you something's wrong. Now, I don't know what that means, so I have to go to someone to find out what that code means. But it's at least a trigger alert to go, ooh, something is not right here. Our emotions can function that way a lot. That when you find yourself flying off the handle in anger or just deep, dark sadness or elation beyond what is kind of in that normal range, something is going on there. And you might need to actually spend time with the Lord being still and going, what is it that I just lost? What is it that I am so excited for that if I then lost that, I don't know how I could move forward? Our emotions can be a very helpful helpful way to understand what's going on, or at least to signal to us that something is out of order. And ultimately, it requires us to sit still before the Lord. Because what does it mean for us to stand firm in faith? What does it mean for us, and what does it look like for us to stand firm in hope in the Lord? It will look like embracing the sign of Emmanuel. Go back with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. I love this. God says, I am going, don't be afraid. Don't lose heart. Be calm. Be careful. This threat that comes against you that you're terrified of, it will not actually happen. It will not destroy you. In verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. Ask me whatever you want. I want to give you a sign to show myself to be trustworthy and true. Verse 12, but Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And that sounds mighty spiritual, doesn't it? Except Ahaz isn't putting the Lord to the test. The Lord is inviting him to ask for a sign. So as you sit with this, you realize this is a little false piety. It's a cover-up, masking some sort of unbelief. Isaiah's response in verse 13 shows us that's exactly what's happening. Here now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, verse 14, the Lord will give you, you all, you plural, he'll give you all a sign. The virgin, the young woman will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And this is where if you are interested in digging into this, go down that rabbit hole and try to figure out exactly what this meant for Ahaz. You could read all sorts of commentaries and discover that no one really knows what this looked like for Ahaz in his life. What we do know is this, that the sign of this child named Emmanuel, symbolic of God's presence with his people, is a sign that God is going to deliver them. It's a promise, and it's also a judgment against Ahaz, the current king. 
See, if you read the next chapter, Emmanuel comes up again. And Emmanuel is very clearly a new king in the line of David. One who is actually going to trust the Lord. Who's not going to look for deliverance from something around him, but he's going to look to the Lord and he's going to rest and put all of his hope and all of his weight in, the God's, in God's ability to deliver and provide. And ultimately, we know because the book of Matthew, which, which, which Brenna read for us a few minutes ago, Matthew quotes and says, Jesus is the fulfillment of Emmanuel. Matthew 1, 22 and 23 says, all this took place, all this prophecy, all this, uh, the, the angel coming to, to Mary and to Joseph, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And then he quotes this verse. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this is the plot twist that the Bible, no one saw coming. That Emmanuel, this, this idea, this picture of God being with his people was always supposed to come through the presence of the Davidic king. He was God's representative on earth. What they didn't see coming is that Emmanuel was actually God in flesh. That when God sees us threatened on all sides from things that make us fearful, overwhelmed, concerned, terrified, shaking like a tree blown in the wind, that it moves him towards compassion. And what we celebrate at Christmas is true. That God himself, the second person of the Trinity, the Son came down and took on flesh and became like one of us. He became like one of us so that he might taste our sadness, but that he might not be overwhelmed by it, but he might carry us through it. See, here's the crazy thing about what Jesus does, is that he comes and he experiences the biggest threat that comes against any one of us, which he, he deals with a threat that's so much bigger than two kings that press against Judah. He aims to deal with the core, with the root that has brought all the suffering and all the fear in our lives. The verse right before Matthew, uh, verse one, chapter 1, verse 21, says that you will call him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is the gospel. This is the good news is that Jesus doesn't just come to deal with our surface level issues. He comes to deal with the very thing that has brought those issues in the first place. He has come to deal with our issue of sin. He's come to do whatever it takes to bring us back to relationship with the Father. And that required him to take all of our sin on himself at the cross. And he allows the enemy, the truest enemy, to take him over. But it's not strong enough. Because he's the one who trusted himself fully to his Father. And his Father vindicated him by raising him from the dead. So Jesus has gone through death. And what you and I do is by faith, we are united with him and his resurrection becomes our resurrection. Which means that if Jesus has already defeated death, then what do you and I have to be afraid of? If we belong to him and not even death has any teeth against us, not even death has any sting then all these things that we're afraid of, all these things that overwhelm us are small compared to that. That Emmanuel, God is with us. That he has come near because he loves you. Because he wants you to actually experience life. And he comes to you and he says, be careful, be calm. 
Don't be afraid. Don't lose heart. For I have overcome. And if the Lord is for us, then who can be against us? What does that look like? It will look like us growing in our understanding of Emmanuel, of growing to understand and realize that God is with us now. Because after his resurrection, Jesus ascends to the Father and and he gives his spirit so that we're not looking around for Jesus right now, but Jesus has put his spirit inside of us so that wherever you go and whatever you face, God is with you and he is strong. And as we grow to rest and to lean into what it means that God is with us, it will always look like communion with God through prayer. It'll mean that in those moments that we have to wrestle to believe that God is with me now and that he is able and that I should put my hope and trust in him alone and that will come out in prayer. It'll come out in something that sounds like, God, I am afraid. That's why I love the Psalms because the Psalms invite us to bring all those emotions, those overwhelms, those, those fears, all of that. We bring that to God because he's with us and he's for us. Surrendering those to him, I'm afraid, I'm overwhelmed, and I'm helpless to do anything about it. I've come to the end of myself. I've acknowledged my need for him. And I want to sit and be still before him. And I want to resist the urge to muscle up, to distract, to power through, to manipulate and try and make things work out my way. But I want to sit and be still before the Lord. Psalm 130 verse 5 says, I will wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. And you're probably going to have to preach to yourself a lot. Psalm 42, 11, that's exactly what the psalmist does. He says, oh, my soul, why are you downcast? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. If Christ, who is with us, is victorious over the strongest thing, which is death itself, then what do we have to be afraid of? If death could not overwhelm him, and if it did not overwhelm him, it cannot overwhelm us, then the things that we feel are threatening us We can turn to him in trust, surrendering ourselves to him. And actually, if you took a moment this afternoon and reflected on the places where the Lord has delivered you, I think you'd be encouraged. If you run back over your life, over your story, and you are, are, if you remind yourself of the stones of remembrance, the places where God has been faithful to you, you will be encouraged because he does not abandon his people. And yet, faith is hard. We have to receive this promise by faith. How can I know that God has taken away my sin? How can I know that he will not abandon me? How can I know that he is trustworthy to carry me through the situation that is making me scared and losing heart where I'm not calm? And the good news is on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave us a sign. He says, I know that faith is hard. I know it's hard to believe that I am with you, but I want to give you something. It's called the Lord's table. That is a sign, that is a reminder that my body was broken for you, that my blood was poured out. It is as real, my forgiveness, my presence with you is as real as the bread that you're going to hold in your hands in a moment and the juice that's going to sit on your tongue. 
He gave you a sign because he knows faith is hard. And there will be a day coming one day when the Lord returns at his second coming, when your faith will become sight. And it will be as real as the elements we're going to hold together. The Lord's Supper is the new sign of Emmanuel. It's a reminder that the Lord is with you and he will never leave you nor forsake you and nothing, not even death, can separate you from his love. Let's pray and then we'll go to the Lord's table together. Father, thank you for your goodness towards us, for your love. Thank you for seeing us overwhelmed and scared and lost. And thank you that just because of who you are, that that brings about compassion, that Jesus, you would become like us, that you would walk in our shoes, that you would experience suffering, and yet you did it without sin. And because you were sinless, death had no hold over you. You are trustworthy. You are strong enough. Lord, help us in our moments of unbelief, when we're faced with all sorts of things, just like Ahaz, when we're tempted to put our, our functional hope in something other than you, Lord, remind us that you are with us. And we thank you that what we're about to partake in together is a, is a physical, tangible reminder. It's, it's, it's the same gospel that we preach with our words. We get to touch and hold with our hands. We get to taste with our mouths. So remind us of your love for us today as we sit with you together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.